Good morning again. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 7. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 7, verse 54 through 8, verse 4. Acts 7, 54 through 8, verse 4. And before we read that together, would you pray with me? Our Father, we come to you once again to hear from you, to be fed by you, to be encouraged and strengthened in our faith, to be corrected and directed and guided in our walk with you. We pray, Father, that you would speak to us this morning through your word, by your spirit, and that you would work in our hearts uh, to illumine our hearts, that we would understand, to uh, transform our hearts, that we would begin to live differently in light of all that you have done for us in your Son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 7, verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But when Saul was, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went abroad, preaching the word. Overbearing bosses, picky teachers, pushy friends, disagreeable spouses, grumbling kids, God is calling you to enter into conflict. He's calling us to enter into conflict as a part of our testimony to His grace in our lives. 1 Peter 2.21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. 1 Peter 4 says, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Entering into conflict and difficulty well are a part of our witness to the work of Jesus in our lives. Suffering or, or entering into conflict well allows us to glorify God as Christians. It gives us that opportunity and it is part of taking up our cross 
and following Jesus. So this morning we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about entering into conflict and suffering well. What we're going to see is that to suffer well, and you can see this on the back of your bulletin, if you want to follow along on the outline there, to suffer well, we must live as people who, one, look to the invisible, two, advocate for our enemies, three, mourn as an act of protest, and four, suffer to give life. Now remember where we are in the book of Acts. Uh, we have been studying the book of Acts for a number of months now, and the young church has received the gift of the Holy Spirit and been empowered to proclaim Jesus. Stephen, uh, a man full of the Spirit, was appointed as a deacon, and he began to proclaim the risen Jesus as he went about. The Jesus who came to free us from the bondage to the Mosaic Law, to build the true and living temple, the church, which is indwelt by God's Spirit. And of course, Stephen's hearers didn't like that very much. And so they brought false witnesses against him. They dragged him before the council. And the more Stephen preached, the more they gnashed their teeth at him. Well, what happened next? That brings us to our first point. Look to the invisible. As they grind their teeth with rage, Stephen has a vision. Uh, full of the Spirit, he gazes up into heaven, according to verse 55, and he sees the glory of God, that is, the, the heavenly brilliance that hides the face of God. And he sees Jesus standing at God's right hand. And he says, look, I see heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. For a moment, for Stephen, that the curtain is pulled back, what is already there, what is real, what is eternal, for a moment is made visible to Stephen. He sees not the earthly court with its false witnesses, but the heavenly court with Jesus, his witness, his advocate, standing at God's right hand, standing for him. Now, I don't know about you, and what your tendencies are when, when you get attacked, maybe verbally, maybe physically, or when conflict comes your way, the, the most common tendencies are either to, to fight or to flee. Right? That's why we talk about it as, as fight or flight. And we go often on the verbal offensive or we retreat from the conversation. We charge in fists flying or we run away screaming. Stephen, of course, does neither of these things. And think of all that's, that, that was up against Stephen. His fellow Greek-speaking Jews opposed him. They had set up false witnesses against him. They stirred up uh, an angry mob to oppose him. They, they brought him before the council of his people. And of course, Stephen knows what happened to Jesus just a little while before. He, he was falsely accused. He was falsely charged. He was falsely condemned. He was put to death. And Stephen knows it could go this way. It would be easy to despair or to give up or just assume, well, they, that is his opposition, they, they will have the last word. Right? They, this is it. This is the end. And, and that often is our tendency when conflict comes our way, right? When, when, when we're attacked in some way, right? We see the opposition as ultimate. 
Uh, we see the enemy's power as if it's all powerful. So they have the upper hand, right? They're stronger, they're smarter, they're better connected. They have control of the government, the media, the policies, the university, the church. Surely they're going to win. It's hopeless for us. See, we don't look further than what our eyes can see. Uh, we, we see people, and we see them as obstacles and inconveniences. We, we see the inconvenience, and uh, we think that our agenda is really the most important thing, and you're getting in my way. We see money and influence, and we think they're the real powers in life. So if I don't have them, I feel pretty good. Or if I, if I do have them, I feel pretty good. But if I don't have them, I despair. We see trouble and we think only of earthly causes and earthly consequences. Often when we see the teeth of the lion, we assume that we are about to be eaten. We forget that there is a lion, but there is also a lion tamer. Stephen knows what happened to Jesus, but Stephen also knows what happened to Jesus. Jesus was falsely executed, but he also rose from the dead. And now Stephen sees Jesus standing at God's right hand, advocating for him. And this is important, and it shapes Stephen's response at this moment. Stephen doesn't run, and he doesn't fight back. He doesn't call down curses, and he doesn't capitulate. Why not? Because Stephen knows two things. Stephen knows, one, that Jesus has risen and ascended, and therefore death does not have the final word. The crucified carpenter is the risen king. And he sees him at the right hand of the Father. Second, Stephen knows that Jesus is advocating for him. That's the significance of Jesus standing in that moment. Uh, you may remember when Jesus was brought before the council, uh, when he was arrested and tried, he said in Matthew 26, From now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And Jesus was there uh, echoing Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has this vision of the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days to receive the kingdom. And Jesus' point is that he is the Son of Man, who is about to receive the kingdom through his death and resurrection. The Son of Man being seated on the throne of God was a sign of his reign. But notice that Stephen says uh, he saw Jesus not sitting at the right hand of God, but standing. Why standing? Well, the best explanation is that Jesus stands for Stephen as his advocate, his witness. And Jesus is called our advocate with the Father in 1 John chapter 2. He is at the right hand of God interceding for us, according to Romans 8.34. On account of his resurrection, we're told he always lives to make intercession for us, according to Hebrews 7. See, in that moment, Stephen knows that it doesn't matter who is against him because Jesus is for him. Stephen could face his serious opposition because he could literally, at that moment, look to what is invisible. Jesus advocating on his behalf with the Father, witnessing for him even when the world was against him. This is why Stephen calls out in verse 59, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You may remember Jesus on the cross prays something similar. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus entrusts himself to the Father in his greatest moment of suffering. And so it's amazing 
that, that Stephen entrusts himself to whom? Not to the Father, but to Jesus. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Which is amazingly strong testimony that the earliest church believed that Jesus was God in the flesh. What Jesus could pray to the Father, they could pray to Jesus. And it, it, it was not because Jesus was the Father, right? Jesus was not the Father, but at the Father's right hand. Nevertheless, He can hear our prayers and care for our souls. Now, our opposition is normally much smaller than Stephen's. Traffic, bosses, spouses, children, professors, all kinds of people who might threaten our happiness. And they may not be against us, capital A, in the long term, but they sure might be in the moment. And we often despair. We quickly give up. We assume the enemy's power is too great. We assume the opposition will overwhelm us. Even when we fight back, right? Even when we get in fights, when we start arguing and yelling or grumbling and complaining, it's really because we're, we're overwhelmed and we're trying to regain control. We're trying to fix the situation and turn it to our way. But we forget that whoever is against us, Jesus is for us. Even if death is our lot, the resurrection is to follow. We may not have the curtain pulled back and visions of the Son of Man like Stephen did, but we have God's Word and we have His promises. And if you want to suffer well, if you want to face conflict well... Do not live by what your eyes can see. Remember the powers of this world are not ultimate, that your enemies are not ultimate, that, that your opposition in this life is not ultimate. And in those moments of conflict, little and large, Jesus is advocating for us. Not for us to get our way, necessarily, but for us to persevere in faith. Remember Jesus' prayer, uh, his words to Peter, he says, uh, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Jesus prays for us in the midst of our trials that we would persevere in faith. And so walk by faith. Remember that we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus stands now at the Father's right hand before the only court that ultimately matters, and he is for you. If you would enter conflict well, first look to the invisible. Remember the powers of this age are not all powerful. Your opposition is not ultimate. You have an advocate with the Father. Second, uh, you must advocate for your enemies. Again, our tendency when attacked is to attack back. Someone yells at us, we yell back. At one point uh, in Jesus' ministry, he was going through a Samaritan village, you may remember, but the people did not receive him. And we're not told anything more than that, but that the people did not receive him. And then we're told the response of James and John. Do you remember the response of James and John? Uh, Luke chapter 9, they say, Lord, do you want us to call uh, fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Overkill. Do you ever respond like that to trouble? Someone bumps into you and you bite their head off. The car in front of you keeps putting on its brakes and you mutter all kinds of curses under your breath. 
Your kids leave something out or something undone or something amiss again, and you go from loving correction to total destruction in about 2.5 seconds. It's even worse when someone is actually gunning for you, right? Uh, someone corrects you or calls you out or puts you down or goes over your head or behind your back or lies to you or tells on you, right? How do you uh, handle such conflicts? With humility and gentleness? With mutual respect and kindness? Well, I don't know about you, but I know for me the answer is no. <laughs> Right? We, we tend to bite people's heads off or, or vomit out insults or return in kind every offense and imagined hurt. And this is all the more true if the person is in a position of authority. We grumble against our boss. We burn under a teacher's scorn. Right? They, they hold our destiny in their hands and we hate it and we hate them for it. Jesus calls us not to call down fire and brimstone upon them, but to pray for them. Matthew 5, 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus models that on the cross, doesn't he? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In fact, the whole gospel models this, right? Romans chapter 5, verses 8 to 10, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Right? When did God move toward us for reconciliation? When we were his enemies. He didn't wait for us to apologize to move toward us. He moved toward us in Jesus. Now, we have to respond uh, to him in repentance and faith when we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But he moves first toward us in the cross. When we face opposition and enemies, Jesus says to pray. And Stephen prays, right? Look at verse 60. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. Now this is while he's being stoned to death. He cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now it's difficult to pray for you know, an all-powerful enemy who controls your destiny and will destroy your life. You fight back or you run and hide. But once you begin to realize that actually there's something bigger going on, that the world might witness against us, but Jesus witnesses for us, that the world might seek our harm, but Jesus is seeking our wholeness at the throne of grace, that as Joseph said, they may intend evil in what they do, but God intends it for good, our attitude toward our enemies can begin to change. By enemies, of course, in one sense, I mean anyone with whom you find yourself in conflict, large or small, in the moment. If you think this moment is everything, you have to throw down, right? You, you, you have to make this work. You have to regain control or run and hide and hope that your troubles go away. But if Jesus is at the throne advocating with the Father for us, if the one who died and was raised is, is seeking our good right now, we don't have to fight our enemies and we don't have to flee from our enemies. We can actually pray for them. We know we are in our Father's hands. So we can give of ourselves for our enemy by pouring ourselves out in prayer on their behalf. 1 Peter 3.9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now I know uh, that 
this is not easy. I frequently fail at this. Uh, I think, if I'm honest, my approach to conflict is either that of a bully or a wimp, right? Fight if I think I can win. Run if I think I can't. Jesus says to me and to us, I am on the throne and I am for you. The lion is a caged lion. Satan wants to devour you, but Jesus has prayed for you and is praying for you. He is praying for us so we can be free, not to fight, not to flee, but to actually seek the good of our enemies. But that's not all. Uh, We must live as those who look to the invisible, knowing that Jesus is at the Father's right hand advocating for us. And then as Jesus advocates for us, we are then free to advocate for our enemies. And three, we are to mourn as an act of protest. Uh, Stephen was stoned to death as a blasphemer. This sparks a persecution uh, against the church that is in Jerusalem. And uh, by the Jewish law at that time, a person who was executed could be buried, but was not to be mourned for. It's interesting, then, that we have this note in uh, chapter 8, verse 2, where we read, Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. And I want you to just think about this lament for a few minutes. There are four things uh, that we'll see. Lamentation is the proper response to evil. Lamentation makes a statement. Lamentation identifies with the broken And lamentation is costly. Uh, So first, lamentation is the proper response to evil. When trouble happens, our first response is to fight back, right? To use aggression, to, to regain control of the broken world. But the truth is, we don't have control of this wicked world. Even the control we were meant to have in creation, much we have lost because of sin. And when evil things happen, anger is often our futile attempt to gain control of a world that is out of control. And so what is the proper response to evil? Sadness. Sadness is is underrated in our culture, I think. Uh, If someone is sad, our first response is to try to cheer them up. But mourning, lament, is the biblical response to evil. There's a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations. Mourning and lament is the human response to evil. The moment we stop mourning is the moment we have lost a little piece of our humanity. Sometimes rather than cheering people up, we should just mourn with them. You remember Job's friends, right? You you, you know, the ones who always get the bad uh, reputation. Uh, They sat with him seven days and seven nights in silence, mourning with him. Where Job's friends went wrong was not the seven days and seven nights of silence and mourning, but when they opened their mouths to speak. We we normally don't make it an hour of silence, a minute of silence, before we open our mouths to speak. And yet even Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus and mourned the brokenness of the world. Lament is the proper response to evil. Second, lamentation makes a statement. Uh, Again, in Stephen's day, you were not to mourn for an executed criminal. But they mourned. They they lamented with a great lamentation, the, the text tells us. They wept over the injustice and the brokenness. 
Morning makes a statement, right? The world wants to tell us that everything is okay. Everything is as it should be. In fact, today we say that there isn't even a should be. So just stop worrying so much and enjoy life. And so when we mourn or weep or wail, we, we make a countercultural statement. Life is not as it should be. Something is wrong. A snake has crept into the garden and life is broken. Third, lamentation then identifies with the broken. Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 8 tells us that a great persecution had arisen against the church in Jerusalem. Verse 3 then tells us that Saul was, was ravaging the church, dragging men and women off to prison. And sandwiched in between those two verses is, of course, verse 2. Verse 2 tells us that as people were being dragged off for believing the things that Stephen believed... Some devout men, rather than hiding their faith, rather than fleeing Jerusalem with others, they identified with Stephen. And too often when trouble happens, we distance ourselves, right? We, we want to keep our hands clean. We know there is brokenness over there among those people, but we're doing okay. But what do these devout men do? They, they identify with Stephen. They identify with the broken one. They identify with his pain and his death, and they, they, they mourn, they weep, they lament, But, of course, this leads to a fourth thing, which is that lamentation is costly. Stephen has just been executed by what appears to be a mob. Lamentation of an executed criminal was forbidden, but these men identify with the criminal at the very moment that others, like Stephen, are being dragged off to prison. Which is to say that these men are actually putting themselves in harm's way. Think about it. Part of their great lament was surely this, right? This was wrong. This was an injustice. Oh, God, how long? To mourn was to to protest, right? And and I'm not saying that they went around with uh, protesting with pickets and signs. That's not what I mean. I mean that their mourning itself, expressing their sadness, was a kind of protest. To mourn is to say, this shouldn't be. But when other people depend on this world being as it is, or when people gain power by the world being as it is, or when people gain comfort by convincing themselves that everything's okay, nothing's wrong here, or when people have spent their lives and so built their lives around coping with the world as it is, to say something's wrong, that this world is not as it should be, is is not popular. Others might dismiss you. Right? As, as a buzzkill or, you know, a party pooper or a stick in the mud or, you know, a downer. Or, you know, well, you're just depressed, right? You, you need to go on medication. Now, I'm not a doctor, right? I'm not saying who should and who should not go on medication. But I do want to say this, that mourning in a broken world is actually a way of holding on to our humanity. To recognize that things are not what they should be. To go against the lie that everything's fine. When conflict comes, when troubles and trials come our way as individuals, uh, we we aren't to fight. We aren't to to use aggression. We're to mourn the evil in the world. Now, there's an important qualification to that. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. There's this great little phrase at the end of chapter 7. After Stephen prays, he fell asleep. Why fell asleep? Why that phrase? It's kind of an odd phrase here because falling asleep is a peaceful thing. 
Stephen was just pummeled with enough rocks, blow after blow, to kill him. There was nothing peaceful about it. But Luke uses this language. As Paul uses this language elsewhere, I think, because Jesus used the language. You know, uh, there was one point Jesus was going to heal a, a dead girl, and the people were mourning and weeping and wailing loudly. And on this occasion, actually, Jesus says in Luke 8, Do not weep. She is not dead but sleeping. And we're told that they laughed at him because they knew she was dead. Why would Jesus say that? Now, I just told you that mourning was, was the most appropriate human response to evil, and then Jesus says, don't weep. Well, I think in part it's circumstantial, and you read the story, look at the story, and we could talk about the story, but the short of it is Jesus was about to raise this girl from the dead. Her death was but asleep, because you wake up from sleep. This is why the New Testament often talks about death, the death of Christians as sleep, because we will wake up. We can mourn trouble, even with great lamentation, as uh, the devout men did in Acts 8. We can mourn as those who have hope. Hope in Jesus, hope in the resurrection of the dead, hope that though we sleep, we will awake. If you want to face conflict and trouble uh, rightly, uh, we must, one, learn to look to the invisible, know that Jesus, your advocate, stands for you at the Father's right hand. Two, you must yourself not fight with your enemies, not get sucked into the ways of the world, but advocate for them at the throne of grace. And three, we must allow ourselves to uh, experience the pain of mourning and brokenness the pain of mourning the troubles of this age, even as you hope in the one to come. And then four, and finally, uh, we need to suffer in order to give life. We're going to talk about this more next week, I think, but I, I just want to mention here, notice the end result of Stephen's martyrdom uh, and, and the church's persecution. Down in chapter 8, verse 4, verse 4 says... Um, well, verse uh, 1 tells us there arose a great persecution that, that scattered the Christians throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. And then verse 4 says, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. God in his sovereign wisdom, God in his, in his plan and providence uses Stephen's martyrdom and the persecution of the church to actually spread the gospel of Jesus throughout Judea and Samaria. What the mob meant for evil, God meant for good. The suffering of God's people led to the spread of the gospel and ultimately more people coming to faith in Jesus. And one early church father is often quoted as putting it this way. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the saints. That is that as God's people suffer, even to the point of death, it actually promotes the spread of the gospel rather than hinders it. That's what we see here in Acts, at least. And now, few of us, uh, I hope, will ever be called to give our blood for Jesus. And yet, without taking away from the valiant faith of those who give their lives for Jesus in every age, without downplaying that at all, I have often thought that it might be harder to live for Jesus than to die for him. Because if you die for him, you die once. 
But if you live for him, you must die every day. Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow him. The cross is an instrument of execution. Jesus explains it as deny yourself and take up your cross. Deny your own wants, your own needs, your own desires. That that is painful. That does involve suffering. And we deny ourselves not just for the sake of denying ourselves. We don't go without just to go without or something like that, but for the sake of others. Uh, The word compassion means to suffer with another, to willingly take on the suffering of another person. The word patience in Greek is long-suffering, a willingness to suffer, to endure difficulty without anger or retreat. Love. Love is to give of oneself for the good of another. Uh, 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. To suffer with, to suffer for, to go without, to accept sadness, to lay down one's life, to give on up one's own, these seem to be at the heart of the Christian life. The heart of discipleship, the heart of love. Even the heart of, of life and giving life. Uh, John 12, 24, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it cannot bear fruit. Right? This is the logic of the gospel, that life comes through death. To become life-giving, you actually must put yourself to death every day in your relationships with those around you. And on the one hand, I think this is obvious, right, in the Christian life. Maybe not so much, but it should be. Jesus went to the cross to die in order to give life to us, and then he calls us to follow him, a crucified Messiah. Stephen is here Uh, Even as we watch Stephen throughout chapter 6 and 7 and into 8, he is being conformed to the image of Christ. I mean, think about all the echoes of Jesus' own trial and crucifixion, the, the jealous opposition, the false accusations, the high priest's examination, the mention of seeing the Son of Man at the right hand of God, entrusting of the soul into God's hands, the request for forgiveness for one's oppressors, and the result is good news. Jesus' death and resurrection is the good news. And Stephen's death scatters that good news throughout Judea and Samaria. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it cannot bear fruit. As Jesus' disciples, we are to be conformed to his image. Paul says his goal in Philippians 3.10 is to share in Christ's suffering and become like him in his death. And to pour out himself as an offering for the sake of the church. Our tendency when we are attacked or confronted or when conflict comes our way, when troubles assail us, our tendency is to give up, to think that suffering leads to death, leads to nothingness, that suffering means we lose. But in the counterintuitive wisdom of God, the cross leads to the resurrection, and death leads to life, and suffering leads to glory, and opposition actually leads to outreach. So when you face opposition and conflict and trouble, that that doesn't mean that your world is coming to an end. It certainly doesn't mean that God has fallen asleep or forgotten about you or given up on you. In fact, it may mean just the opposite, that God is at work in you and through you in the lives of others. That in the wisdom of God, our suffering has a purpose. God is, is using it for our good and the good of those around us. 
God grows us through suffering. We bear witness as we suffer. God draws people to himself even on account of our suffering. We, we can't necessarily understand that. Uh, we can't know how it will all work out. But we see the pattern. We see it in Jesus. We see it in Stephen. We see it in Paul. We see it elsewhere in Scripture. You see it in Joseph way back in the book of Genesis. God uses our suffering for human good and for his glory. Jesus came to identify with his enemies, to identify with us in our sad estate, to bear our sin and misery, to suffer and die, and to rise as victor and king. And he now advocates for us at the Father's right hand. So we can be free to advocate for our enemies, to, to face conflict, knowing that Jesus is at work in this, standing for us in heaven, working for his glory and human good. And so we can suffer with confidence and hope as we look to our Savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are good. And you are standing at the right hand of the Father, advocating for us even now, interceding for us, Scripture tells us, again and again. Help us to rest in that fact. Help us to know it. Help us to internalize it. Help us to believe it and trust it and live in light of it. That, that Jesus stands for us at the Father's right hand. Help us to find comfort in that. And use it, Father, to enable us to face suffering and conflict differently. Ultimately, to face them with hope. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.